0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the California Association of Tactical Officers podcast, where we discuss a variety of SWAT-related topics. We believe tactics are a science, and the art is in how we apply those tactics. My name is Marcus Sprague. And I'm Brent Stratton. Travis, for those uh, folks that are listening that don't know who you are, can you give us a little bit about your background, where you work, and uh, what you teach? And... uh,
1: you've written several articles and how you, how you kind of got into that. Yeah. So I've been with, uh, Oceanside for 20 years. Uh, I'm a Lieutenant there right now. I've been a Lieutenant for about the last year and a half. Uh, I'm a watch commander. I have a bunch of different, uh, collateral duties as everybody does body worn cameras, active shooter, stuff like that. Uh, I've went 14 years on our team. Uh, seven of those as a team leader, I held pretty much every position except sniper and breacher um, what else? I did a lot of stuff with gangs for about five years, uh, work patrol as a Sergeant for about seven. Um, I teach for NTOA. Um, I've taught for NTOA for about two or three years. I teach team leader. I teach, uh, supervising patrol critical incidents for them. I also teach for SIDS company, field command, tactical science. Uh, I've written in some articles, uh, on a bunch of different stuffs. Uh, actually, it was Sid that encouraged me to write. Um, I didn't think I could do it. I didn't think I had enough to write, but come to find out, everybody has things that they can write about, and I would encourage everybody to be writing. Um, there's a lot of stuff out there that that we all talk about, but there's nothing that is peer-reviewed that we can go refer to when somebody starts asking us questions about it. Um, and that's one of the reasons that I write is so that, you know, like I wrote one on combined arms, you know, the use of multiple less lethal weapon systems. When I went looking for stuff to back that up, uh, there was really nothing out there. Even Sid didn't have anything on it. So now there is a peer reviewed article that I wrote on that, that you can say, Hey, you know, this is something that is used. Here's some research on it, et cetera, et cetera.
2: Now, when you talk about things being peer reviewed, uh, Travis, what are the um, I don't know specifications or what kind of a um, right. the qualifications for making something peer reviewed? I mean, do you mean peer reviewed? Just you have another officer in the field, uh, you know, somewhere another lieutenant looking at it? Is it somebody that has to have a certain educational background? Um, what what is it that makes the the qualifications for it um, being peer reviewed? So when I say peer reviewed, there's like let's
1: let's take an article for cato i don't know what cato's peer review process is but you have probably people on the board or someone with expertise in whatever that person's writing in look at it and review it and make sure that it meets muster um for ntoa when you like when i write for tactical edge they have chairs so like they have an incident command chair i just wrote one on drones and situational awareness so it's going to their legal it's going to their legal chair. It's going to their um, tech chair, and they go through it. And if they have questions, or if you know, you, it's basically so you don't write a bunch of bullshit. And right. Just put it out. Put it out there. It's increasing the professionalism of 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 tactical of the
2: tactical world, and that's what it's. I agree. To do. So, that, that it, process, which which I mean, mirrors what other which mirrors what other professions are doing right if we're talking about increasing right. the professionalism of policing here that's probably how uh, uh you know medical journals do it and and things like that
1: right because what was happening is you just have a bunch of guys that are writing a bunch of nonsense and you know that's not what we want out there we want things that have been looked at and researched it's not just because travis norton says so it's like hey i have I've looked at these things. I've, you know, there's this article out here that I pull into the literature. And um, so that's kind of the
2: probably long answer for what a peer review is as far as, you know, our world. I think that's pretty cool, man. I think that's an area where we're definitely lacking. And as the complexity within our profession is changing, we're going to need to have the ability to cite studies and cite other Um, articles and and things as such. And I know you're working on uh, your formalized education as well. And uh, we're hoping that Cato can become a repository for information such as that. I'm working on my thesis right now that is dealing with something in the tactics world. And, and I know um, you either recently completed yours or, or are um, launching into a more advanced degree. And uh, I think there's a need for us to be able to um, contain those, those things as well, to be able to use, um, for people to, within the profession to be able to use as sources should they choose?
1: Yeah, so I wrote, I, I'm done with my master's. I got that at Cal State Long Beach in Emergency Services Administration. Um, I wrote my thesis on the initial response phase to large scale critical incidents uh, involving an adversary. Um, I took 15 after action reports, analyzed them all, and then uh, came up with the seven primary mistakes we're making, no surprise. The number one is incident command, basically lack of leadership. And um, I've laid out the timeline. So now we have something where we can go to where you can go into a class and say, hey, over 90 percent of large scale incidents involving a bad guy have incident command problems. And if somebody starts asking you questions, well, where the hell did you get that? Well, you can say, hey, it's been researched. There's methodology, exactly how that whole thing was laid out. Again, trying to increase professionalism, you know. Um, sure, because we hear all these things, and people start just throwing things out there, throwing numbers out there, or throwing and with really no basis for it. And I'm talking about our detractors. Um, yeah, absolutely. Hey, Travis, did
0: you bring up the, the, your thesis in that project, and haven't haven't talked to you about it a few times uh, over the years. And I know that's going to come up in the keto conference this year in 2019. You're going to talk about that, but um, a lot of that data came from the Cato after action program. Can you talk to uh, us a little bit about that and kind of what your experience
1: is there? So a lot, um, first of all, all the after action reports that I used for my, for my thesis are on, are on the website under the, uh, I forget what tab it is, but they're all there. I used it probably a hundred different times when I was writing and I still use it for, for other stuff, but the after action review team, uh, it was one of Sid's, you know, million projects he had, um, he, he wanted when, when he came on board, this was one I was really interested in because I know if you talk to Sid, he, um, he had been out to a lot of the incidents that happened during his time, you know, like nine 11 and, um, the Murrah federal building bombing. Uh, he's been all over the place getting debriefed on incidents and, while Sid has a ton of experience, he'll tell you that a lot of what he learned was from reviewing these incidents and nobody was taking that project. So I took it. Um, and I've been all over the place. Uh, talking to people involved in active shooter events. Um, Northern California out to um, most of them honestly, you can't even talk about it because they're embargoed. But uh, we've been out to Pittsburgh, uh, Orlando, been up to Northern California a couple times, um, Aurora, Illinois, um, and we went over to um, London, got debriefed on the London Bridge attack, uh, Manchester, um, and also Barcelona with the La Rambla attack where the, uh, the ISIS terrorists mowed down all those poor people on, on La Rambla.
0: What are some of those challenges that you saw historically that are still happening today?
1: Couple things. Number one, you've got the decision on whether or not to intervene in an active shooter situation is really um, causing us some issues. And what I mean by that is that you will get an active shooter that, um, and it doesn't happen a lot, but it happened in Orlando and it happened in a couple other places where the suspect is inside the target location with hostages if you will and i'll go into hostages versus captives here in a bit but they sit outside the target locations and they go do we go inside do we not go inside do do we intervene do we not intervene and that decision because what what do we normally teach for active shooter once the shooting stops slow down yeah we slow down we stop there's no shooting we go to barricade well the problem with that is that half the time you've got injured people inside the location that we need to get inside and start to stop the dying phase. So arguments start outside. Well, should we go in? Should we not? And then you've got an incident commander who's either timid or um, is not ready for these types of things. Who's new. Um, who's his first day as a Lieutenant. I mean, we, I, Reviewed one of those where you know it was his first day as a lieutenant, and he turned to the SWAT commander and just said, "Hey, take this. I can't do it. How do you, as a SWAT commander, deal with that?" And um, so that is one of the biggest things: is hey, do do we intervene or not? Um, and it's just not a it's just not a decision that 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 a lot of people are comfortable with because they're frankly deciding on whether or not they're going to get shot, or some of their officers are going to get shot, or you know. It's not an easy decision.
0: Yeah. And I've got a great quote from you. um, But I believe you wrote this in a recent article. Uh, I can't remember where where because i've read you know a bunch of your stuff but uh we're talking or interviewing mitch brule about active school active shooters in schools and you both kind of you know we see it evolving the responses from law enforcement and basically your quote is each case is context dependent and decisions need to be made based on the circumstances presented and so often in our culture in law enforcement and in general uh, we want to check back checkbox procedure and no, none of these problems are ever going to all be the same. And you, you've gone all across the country, a couple of places in Europe. No, none of those problems are the same.
1: No, and that's and, yeah. And everybody, it's our job. If you're a team leader or a team commander, it's your job to develop complex problem solvers. Everybody wants a checklist, and checklists are great for incidents we we know, right? So you take. Uh, um, you know, a hostage problem, you can pretty much checklist a hostage or a barricade or something like that, or take a radio call, a DV, a missing person, So you start and I show a video, uh, you guys have probably seen it though, where the, the tanks going down the street in 95 in San Diego, and you show that video yeah. and then you go, Hey, pull out the checklist for the M60 tank rolling down the street in your jurisdiction. <laughs> it makes the point that you guys, we have to be able to think our way out of these problems. Um, And a lot of guys just want, hey, let's pull out the checklist and go down the checklist and we'll be fine. That doesn't work. Um, So uh, on another note, and just to back up a little bit, the, the decision to intervene, the timeliness of that decision is so paramount. You've got two ways to mitigate that risk. You can either wait for more information to gain certainty. Right. But that could put lives in danger or you can go based on less information. Which one's better? It goes back to what I was talking about, which is it's context dependent. And, you know, we always have a little bit of discretionary time, but not always. Um, so that, that decision is, is throwing a lot of people for a loop. And honestly, how you work through that is, is you, you do decision making exercises with your team and with your, you know, if you're a team commander doing with your team leaders and, uh, you work through these friction points because friction happens between people and processes. And most of the time it's self-induced, meaning we do it to ourselves and you reduce that friction through working it all out on the front end.
2: I mean, what you're really talking about is in our training, transitioning to a more principle based understanding of how we train as opposed to a, you know, a recipe based, uh, you know, for one of the things we see in law enforcement training right throughout forget just uh, the tactical component of law enforcement, but it's, Hey, tell me how to do this. You know, the the two plus two equals four. um, And tell me what you want me to do and I'll go out and do it. And that's a natural inclination because it's pretty easy for us to get to that point. But what you're talking about is understanding the principles and then applying those principles to uh, uh, a critical incident and uh, being able to transition our training types towards that, I I think will ultimately make us more effective when, when those things do happen. Right. It's principles versus
1: procedures. And, and one of the things that, you know, it's the how versus the why. Cops are well trained and poorly educated. They know how to do things, but they can't explain why. I mean, I'm sure both of you guys review use of force reports. I do. And even supervisors have a hard time articulating things that are, that are good, that are very, that are, um, there's no problem with the use of force, but their articulation, even, even officer-involved shootings I've listened to. Um, the recordings and guys are having a hard time articulating why they took a certain course of action and we have to get better at that and that's kind of why I've got my foot in both the academic world and our world of the practitioner because the academic side of the house has a lot to teach us to make us understand why we do things and you know I taught all over the midwest for NTOA and I can tell you you know, you ask, one of my questions is, hey, why do you guys do it that way? And what do you think their answer is all the time? Because that's the way we've always done it. Because that's the way we've always, done, we've always done it. And I go, hey, look, that's great, but that's not going to work in the 1983 lawsuit that you get filed against you. Um, I was in St. Louis uh, teaching a team leader class, St. Louis County, and talking to the guys. that 90% of the attendees were involved in Ferguson. And you want to talk about, you know, an education, those guys are good dudes. I mean, just, you know, SWAT guys are the same pretty much across the country, but they have a hard time uh, articulating the why. And we talked a lot about why that's important. You know, why are you guys still doing everything dynamic? And the answer was, that's the way we've always done it. Well, that's not going to work. So. Yeah, and I'd say
0: our profession is, is definitely going there. There's a trend in partnering with, Uh, academic institutions to do that research and to back it up with, with science and to back it up with peer review. And so I I think that's coming our way. Uh, I see more and more opportunities to do that. And I know you, you do too, Trav, and uh, I think you'll probably be taking advantage of those a lot uh, soon, but that's really, that's really where we need to go. You know, we saw that in our careers with, the public used to uh, just believe what we said. And uh, sometimes law enforcement as a profession took advantage of that. And so uh, we had, we had to evolve and now you're seeing that in like these peer reviewed, you know, articles versus bro science and, and using the academic institutions to help us back up our stuff.
1: Yeah. And they're, and they are, you know, I get it. I mean, cops pretty much thumb their nose at, it. it education because, Hey, we don't need that shit. It's just, dumb. Uh, I don't have time for it. And and I get that. I mean, I loved, you know, when I was having fun and doing the fun stuff. And now I'm at a point in my career where I, this is the way I can help our profession get better at what we're doing, uh, through the education piece and, and, and just teaching guys how to articulate why they're doing things. You know, what are you going to do when your SWAT team gets into some type of controversial officer involved shooting, and you guys are up there having to either to the chief or to whoever, or to, you know, during your interview, you having to explain, Hey, why did you guys intervene in this? You know, why did you guys go in? Why did you just not wait and de-escalate? Right. Cause that's the big thing right now. Um, and they're not going to
0: gonna get- pick, they're not going to pick the smartest go to guy on your team either during that civil deposition, they're going to interview everybody and then they're going to pick the person they think is, the best for them on the stand. And that's not right. necessarily your strongest
1: dude. Yeah. I, I, I can tell you that, and, and, you know, the tactical science side of the house has helped me tremendously. A lot of people thumb their nose at that too, because it is somewhat heady. I get it. But, um, you know, I, I met a guy in uh, Scottsdale, Arizona, and I was talking to him about this stuff. He's like, man, he goes, I was in a deposition getting my ass handed to me. And if I would have understood things like what is a tactical dilemma and involving space and time, you know, if I would have been able to articulate that, it would have saved me so much heartache and so much stress. And guys like that, when you can make a difference with somebody like that and just show them that stuff, that's huge. huge. Well, you know, because yeah. it's stressful to be in a, in a deposition and be getting your ass handed to you and not being able to explain things. You have to be smart. Yeah, it's
0: huge, and you know, you're obviously Brent and I, are huge tactical science fans. You and I, uh, I owe any amount of knowledge I've been able to sponge up um, those guys, and it's all about time and space, right? That's all we can manipulate, and yeah. So, when you when you it helps your yeah helps you articulate your decisions, yeah. and when you see that novel event that doesn't fit anything you've ever seen before, you uh, yeah. You absolutely get it. Hey, you mentioned uh, a couple of minutes ago, uh, you talked about a hostage situation. And recently you wrote an article in the NTOA about the difference between a hostage and a captive. And so, right. um, you know, I, uh, you and I talked about this a year or so ago. And, uh, I've been doing it in, uh, Cato's team leader classes. We talk about it and I've had some pretty heated discussions where guys get, guys get pretty riled up about that.
1: Uh, yeah, what are they getting riled up about? Cause I love starting arguments by the way. Really? I, mean, I never knew that uh, about you. <laughs> if you can start an argument about that stuff, it's a win because yeah. it gets guys thinking, I mean, if they're arguing at break, Hey, that's great.
0: Yeah. So, I, I've seen well, a few guys get mad and just, uh, not not often, but they'll they'll get mad because they'll, you know, you gotta go in or you you don't go in and and it just goes back to why and, and giving them a great example and I'll let you expand on this, but you know, you go you go to what starts off as an active shooter and now you have a guy in a in a house, what doesn't matter what he's in, and and he has people in there and he's already demonstrated his willingness and ability to kill other people. So now do we have, do we slow down and do a hostage negotiation or are they captives? So I'll I'll let you take it from there and talk, talk a little bit about your article.
1: So um, this came out of, this started really making me think when I went to Orlando, um, when we were out there reviewing their incident. And essentially if you have a guy who's on the phone, so he takes, let's say you got an active shooter, he's inside with, what we consider hostages um, and he, he's on the phone and you know, you've got him on the phone and you're trying to negotiate with him, but he doesn't, he doesn't want anything. Um, he's not asking for anything. What What do you have? Right. I mean, what is that? Are those really hostages? What does he want? He's not doing anything. He's just fucking around on the phone. You get yourself a tactical dilemma there. Yeah. And so, <laughs> well you do. And so, the, and so that, <laughs> You know, the, the, the question becomes, well, what are we going to do? How long are we going to fuck around on the phone with this guy? How long are we going to talk to him? But if he's not wanting anything and and, and it goes back to, so, okay, so what's the, what's the um, definition of a hostage? And, you know, you go through that with him and then they go, well, he's not negotiating. So are those hostages or are they captives? Right. And if they're captives, then you need to prepare for an intervention as soon as feasible. And at that point, negotiators are just they can as far as I'm concerned, they can start lying their asses off because that is a less lethal tool at that point. And they are just there to buy you time to get you where you need to or give you the time you need to plan for your intervention um you know that term captives conveys that the victims have zero value to the suspect and they are helpless and are of rescue um you know your rescue tactics always going to be context dependent and derived from the you know the priority of life stuff um but you know when you have a window of opportunity my thing is you need to start you need to you need to intervene now i could care less if you call them hostages or captives it's not the point i only did that just to make the the, the difference but just to right not the, the label people, but so they can understand you can understand the labeling is is somewhat different because you can under, you can argue the 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 definition of a hostage all day long i get that that's not my point my point is teams need to be having this conversation and they need to be having them with incident commanders because what we're running into is incident commanders at this at these things are not going to understand this unless they're grounded in this stuff and we're not running into that. I mean, it's always who's available, who's on duty is arriving. And like I said, over 90% of these things have leadership issues at them. And so imagine you're a SWAT team leader or even a a team member and you're arriving and you get this update and you like, Hey, they're not negotiating. We need to prepare for an intervention here because how long are we going to let this go on? I mean, what are we doing again? Context dependent, but um, you know,
0: Well, it's absolutely, you you know, think about that scenario, right? You're going to, you're, so you're, you're you're on a call out and you get the on-call watch commander who may be their first day, their first week. Uh, For those of you who have been to lieutenant school, uh, how much tactical science decision making do you really get in lieutenant school? And, you know, yeah, and it depends on where you go. So right. you can get, you know, you go Daryl Evans and get four to six to eight hours from, you know, one of the premier tactical science guys you can learn from, or you could get none, or it, it just varies throughout the state and even more, more so across the country. So, yeah, it, it behooves us as SWAT people to actually train up and and take the time to put your lieutenants and your organization through those tabletops before it happens,
1: so. Yeah, and the other, the other issue too, is most of them aren't interested in this stuff, and I'm speaking from- Yes, friends, I agree. My own department, they, they could care less. I mean, they're just hoping they're not on duty, they're counting the days till they retire, and they could give a shit. Um, I mean, I've done, well, I won't go into it, but I've done tabletops at my department, and you can tell, they're just like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Uh, it doesn't matter to me. Um, and that's fine, but those are going to be the ones we're running into at these things. And so um, have this conversation with your teams. Uh, what's some of the arguments that they have, or what's some of the problems that they have with it? I'm curious. Um, because- they had some similar, um,
0: they had some similar uh, scenarios where, you know, the the watch commander wanted to keep negotiating and they knew that that wasn't going to work, but they didn't know how to argue at that level, you know, and sometimes it's your, your SWAT guy. Maybe it's not even a Sergeant that's there. And how do you, how do you speak the language of command staff so that they can see it from a different perspective? Then yeah, and that I just need now. to buy time. Right. I need to buy time. I need to buy time.
1: Right. And, and you guys know time belongs to no one. Right. Yep. You know, time belongs to no one, and that and everybody starts talking about, oh, you know, well, time is on our side. No, it's not. It's all about windows of opportunity that come open and close. There's been no uh, tactical situation ever that has not had a window of opportunity. The problem is we only see them usually when, in hindsight, after it's done. And if you're smart and you study this stuff, you will be more readily able to identify those windows of opportunity when they come open. It's so important.
0: So Trav, we teach in our team leader class, uh, a little bit simpler version of Daryl's, you know, uh, principle-based decision-making and his elements of tactics. And we talk about uh, what you, once the incident kicks off, your your ruler that you're looking at is only time and terrain. Everything else has already been decided. And how do you manipulate that? And once, you know, some people get it right away. Some people kind of get it. But, but once you start looking at the world from that, through that lens, you, you see the ability to manipulate these calls to your advantage in a, in a different way. Now, I would argue most law enforcement officers, uh, even around the country, do it already instinctively. But it's when you run into the big boy one, or there's emotions, or one of your officers has been killed, or there's a right. dead baby, or any of these little things that can just kind of set us off our average call that we forget, hey, this is time and terrain. Right. Time and terrain and then looking for those opportunities. Uh, yep. Uh, so uh, this year at the conference, we've got uh, the Pulse Nightclub coming back. So it's been... Uh, a little over three years since since that happened. And uh, these guys are gonna talk about the incident, which a lot of us have read the debrief on or seen somebody debrief it. Um, but there's a lot of lessons to learn to vent, not just the after action report and what we could have done better, but how you implement those changes and how many can you get done. And the longer it takes you, the, the less political buy-in you get to making those changes, if they have to be big ones. And I'm not saying Orlando had to make big ones or not. I, I'm not in a place to say that. Um, but uh, thinking about that in your experience, going down there, if I remember right, you actually met with the team and went to the location, correct?
1: Yeah, we went. Uh, we met with some guys who were involved, some of the primary guys that were involved, and then um, we went out to the to the Pulse nightclub and walked it. Um, we got inside a little bit, but not much. I mean, it was, we still had to sign in as a crime scene at that point. That's how quick they were still doing that. So,
0: and that's the challenge, right? The challenge of you doing this after action program is you get on the ground quick and you get there, you get there while it's fresh. But the problem with that is a lot of times, you know, people aren't going to be able to talk to you yet. And so you balance this. I have the latest information, but I'm not allowed to release it yet due to
1: a bunch of pending you know, litigation and you kind of have to time that. Yeah. And that's the challenge with the program. I mean, a lot of these things I either make through contacts that I have at NTOA or through Cato. Um, and you talk to these, I mean, I just had one recently where uh, either they're, you know, they're on a gag order and they can't say anything. I still was able to get a lot out of it and it makes sense of everything, but you know, because of other people that were there or whatever. So you piece it together the best you can or, people will say stuff to you off to the side. Um, you know, I've got some places won't call you back. Um, I mean, I called one, one incident out, uh, in Illinois. I just cold called the SWAT commander said, Hey, this is who I am. This is what I do. I'd love to talk to you. I'd love to come out. And I got a call back within two hours. That's, that's the exception, not the rule. Um, most of the time guys want to, guys want to talk to you and tell you what happened. Um, because they're completely different than the after action reports, um, so. Yeah, and that's too bad. That's something our profession needs to do better
0: is how, how can we all learn from each other if we don't admit what we need to do, have done better? And, and we owe that to each other because you know, if you're a student of history of any kind, we're all dealing with the same problems. The population might be different, you might get more of it, but people are people and we just have a
1: little bit different tools, a little bit different technology to deal with the same problems. Right. And so the guy's coming out here from uh, Florida, Carrie uh, Holmes. He's a, he's a, one of their team leaders. Um, I met him at way after the incident, actually. Um, he's a good dude. And he was, he says, Hey, this stuff with, um, uh, you know, you guys, you know, contacting us and doing all this stuff is great. Um, it really, I think we'll pay Uh dividends because of what I'm trying to do is build a network. And and, and so I have this network of people all across the nation where that, you know, that, Hey, if something happens, we can all contact one another and say, Hey, here's some, here's some things like, you know, this hostage versus captive thing came out of one incident. What other blind spots do we have right now that we're not seeing? I'm constantly on the lookout for those because those are where we're going to get our balls kicked in. If we don't, get on it and, and understand what those, what those blind spots are.
0: Yeah. And we can't afford to be on an Island anymore and think we're going to be okay. One thing we talk a lot about, and I know you do too, as we go around the state and teach team leader and commander and, in the you know, my, in my little shop up here in NorCal, we talk about is, Hey, the, the community doesn't care that we've never done this before. Yeah. The community doesn't care that we've only had one in our whole career. Right. They don't they don't care. Right. They they expect you to be able to handle this problem. So what, and, and are, what are we doing to prepare
1: for that? Yeah. And the, and the thing is, most of these incidents that I'm going through, these aren't busy teams. These aren't SEBs or LAPDs or NYPD. It's not those teams that are encountering these events. It's smaller departments with collateral duty teams that are presented with these problems that they've never seen before and are suddenly forced to make decisions about who lives and who dies. I mean, and not a lot of people are ready for that. So, yeah,
0: yeah, you're right. And,
1: and I mean, all you
0: have to do is look up active shooter data and see that, Hey, it's not, you know, they're not often happening at these big cities. They do happen there, but yeah. they, they well, happen I, just as much at these little medium, the small size, you know, communities. Right. And so
1: what, go ahead uh nope go ahead i got you one of the things you just hit on is active shooter statistics which uh, it it hits on something that i talk about is the fact that you know most of these events involve a single male shooter and um that's what we should be training mostly for um remember the big push we had for MACTAC over the years okay Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and so i i just don't You know a multi-multi location hit. I just don't see it. Um, Not saying it wouldn't happen, but what do we? What do we? I mean, take Las Vegas, right? You had a lone shooter in a fixed firing from a fixed elevated position, not maneuvering. And what do you get? Immediately you get calls of I think there were I don't know how many different calls they got of a second third shooter around the area, but what did it go to? It's a single shooter. All the, you know, the the recent one, I think it was either um, the one in Texas. It was either that one. Was that the mobile one? I can't remember. But anyway, they said, Hey, there's, there's two shooters. And well, it's always one out of the two we've had in the last 10 years where they were two shooters, 2014, Las Vegas at the uh, CC's pizza, where those two Mm -hmm. sovereign citizens walked in, killed those two Las Vegas Metro cops then went next door to the Walmart, went active shooter and then you have 2015 San Bernardino IRC incident. Those were both male, female couples and they both stuck together. Those are the only two we've seen where we've had two people in the last 10 years. So the point is, if if you've encountered one shooter, you've probably encountered them all. Do not commit your entire response force to looking for a suspect who's probably not even there. It doesn't mean you don't send one team looking for him, but everybody else needs to start to stop the dying phase. Um, Yeah. That's a, that's another
0: whole conversation to have is that this trend now, in in my opinion, where we need to stop, start training better at stopping the dying. And there, you know, you, you don't hear a lot of civil litigation cases on how long it took us to neutralize a shooter. What you're seeing is what kind of medical care did you provide while your guys were standing around? Right. And And that's another whole deal.
2: Okay, Can you the- talk a little bit about that? You're talking about stopping the dying. And Travis, do you have any any uh, insight from anything you've seen about that? Because one of the things I feel very strongly that law enforcement is going towards is a little bit more of a, a police and fire integrated model where fires is, is in most of these jurisdictions going to need to become um, a little bit more engaged in the early components of these critical incidents more than they have traditionally not uh, advocating for them to, to launch with the, you know, with a, with an initial response team, but having that component where they're stopping the dying. And I've read some of the things you've talked about, about rescue task force being, you know, an option, not the only option and ferrying and different things like that. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: So on the medical side of the house, number one, we're going to have to, at some point, and this is another problem I'm working on is pushing the medical piece all the way down. Um, to and I know a lot of a lot of you know, they're doing a lot of citizen stop the bleeding classes now. But I'm talking about how do we leverage off duty officers, and this comes out of Vegas, off duty cops, off duty public safety. How do we leverage them into the response? Is there a way to do that? And uh, but that's a whole nother conversation to answer what you're talking about. So, out of all the incidents I've reviewed, RTF was only used at two of them, um, and honestly what was used at the outset of that was just a hybrid of get these fricking people out of here and get them to the hospital by hook or crook. And a lot of departments that I see and that I talk to, they are solely focusing on RTF, Rescue Task Force. And my, my, my question to them is, hey, look, how long does it take cops and firemen to do anything together? Um, hey, you, t- you, four, you four firemen, you two cops, all right, get formed up, get this thing and get into the warm zone. Now I'm not saying that it's not a good tactic, but it's just a tactic, right? Tactics are context dependent. What works in one set of circumstances is a recipe for disaster in another. We all know that. Um, so look at other things. What are some other things that you can do? Uh, you know, ferrying you talked about, they did that in one incident where they just took guy, they took the injured from the crisis site to their armor, armor to the ambulances down the street. It's simple, it works a lot of other ones, Hey, we're just throwing them in the back of our cars and going. That's also context dependent. Um, Orlando did a lot of that, but that's because they had, did not have a good relationship with fire while they were down there. And they had some, you know, the IED issue they were dealing with, um, which is a whole nother conversation as well. So my, 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 suggestion to everybody is don't just solely focus on rtf look at what other options are out there there's a quick connect technique where you just form a casualty collection point cops get everybody to the casualty collection point and then fire hooks up the ccp they take them out to their um their multi or their uh, triage area and they get them out um but honestly what's going to happen is it's going to be a cluster and you're just going to do whatever you have to do to get those people medical care because it's not about, it's about timing, right? I mean, our, our medics are teaching now it's don't even concentrate on the airway at first focus on the bleeding, um, you know, the March algorithm. Um, so there's just look at what else is out there. Don't get tied down to just RTF, RTF, RTF. And
0: again, you're, you're going right back to that fighting that I need a procedure and I'm going to focus on the procedure and, uh, not it's a thinking it's a thinking person's
1: sport right you, Yeah, we it, have it's to, always going to be different we have to start teaching adaptive decision making adapt if this isn't working what what's
2: next switch it out okay let's try this um, so Brian did you have something I interrupted you no 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 not at all that's uh, just a really good point of things that we're seeing I think a lot of people are looking at transitioning in public safety to um unifying a police and fire response a little bit more. And there's not a whole lot out there regarding what that response should look like. So uh, you're right. Rescue task force is the biggest tactic that everybody's talking about. But this is really good information, I think, that you're providing regarding, you know, um, fairing and quick connect stuff and talking about the differences differences between a casualty collection point And I think you referenced it as a multiple collection um, no, point. No, casualty collection point. I, I So you talked about officers taking things that uh, taking um, injured parties to a casualty collection point. Are you envisioning that point being the the quick connect being that's the point where then fire or medical aid then transitions them to a medical facility or things like that? Yeah. It's based on a model out of Oregon and uh,
1: my department uses it. Um, We like it, but it's just, like I said, it's what's the strategy. The strategy is stop the dying. The tactics that you use again are dependent. I mean, you know, what did they first do in Las Vegas? I mean, they had reverse triage problems there because the less injured are showing up at the hospital. Um, and now you're getting the really injured people are coming in later and it's causing issues. How do you deal with that? Um, and so RTF was used in Vegas, but not till a little bit later. You know, that that at first, that initial 60 minutes, it was a cluster. Um, there was no, hey, let's set up rescue, you know, it's just going sideways. Yeah, that's just R-
0: chaos trying to figure out where... Where it's coming from, who's doing it, how bad is it? Yeah, you. I mean, it'll take you sixty minutes just
2: to figure, answer those three questions. Are you relying on? Are you, Are they relying on medical aid at the casualty collection point to then farm the patients out to the different medical facilities? Assuming they're in a um, an area that has multiple medical facilities. What what we're trying to it, it, let's let's just take a Walmart, right? So
1: you get an active shooter inside a Walmart. We 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 shoot the bad guy and kill him or maybe he's barricaded and fire is not going to come into that walmart so we set up a casualty collection point at the one side front main entrance cops as they come in are fair you know let's say we got 30 people that are wounded they are by hook or crook getting those people to that casualty collection point and uh, that brings up another point that i'll come back to about mega movers but um and then fire as they come in they connect at that casualty collection point and they're ferrying those people out to a triage area. Do we, now I think your question is, do we do medical inside? Again, it depends. How many tourniquets does one have on you? Um, We're actually getting uh, um, bags from Aardvark that have, uh, I think, 15 of those um, throw kits that you can just take to a casualty collection point and throw them down. And, you know, guys can take them as they come in or fire can use them because I carry one tourniquet on me. Um, there's one in the car, you know, we don't have a lot of tourniquets. So, yeah.
2: that's yeah, hopefully, yeah. No, I'm sorry, go ahead Marcus.
0: I, said, we, I actually met with our fire um, leadership last week and they even acknowledged like, hey, your mass casualty kits should be in the police cars, not the rigs, because the right. rigs aren't even gonna make it that far in you guys get there first you throw your bags out you do what you can if you're working the problem we'll pick your bags up and we'll use them but if you wait for just one bag on one rig when everyone's going to show up right so i'll have three four five who knows how many bags will end up showing up and i can start throwing them around until
1: you know in that casualty collection point the other thing to think about is that the statistics show us that the wound patterns of these things are not the extremities. They're usually the chest or the head. What that means is we're packing more gauze and chest seals than we are tourniquets. For us, the cops, yeah are you know we need those for uh, for us, but most of the wound <laughs> patterns that they're seeing aren't the, aren't the, the extremity stuff. So just something to think about.
0: Go ahead, Brian, I interrupted your question.
2: No, not at all. I just don't know, you know, when we are having these conversations with fire and they're talking about mass casualties and we're getting it to this quick connect point where they're, um, you know, then their triage point, I don't know, um, I don't know enough. Uh, I need to to meet with our fire folks and start to understand some of those things. How are they then coordinating with the various hospitals that are are gonna be in in, uh, big jurisdictions to ensure that they're not overloading, taking people to the same hospital that are showing up there? Because Travis, I think you talked a little bit about that. You know, if the goal, uh, the strategy is stopping the dying, and then you have people that are showing up themselves and they're showing up at certain facilities that um, hopefully there's an infrastructure in place on the medical side that's a little bit beyond our scope. But I think, we can at least help drive that point and drive that training into that component of a response that, uh, ensuring that, um, you know, these are being spread out, um, throughout uh, throughout a jurisdiction. If, if, you know, if we can,
1: yeah, I mean, I trying to, I mean, it's so much work to do, right. I mean, right. how many of us have our regular jobs and then five collateral duties on top of that. And then we're trying to do all this too. But somehow, you know, either you or your tac medics need to have that conversation, and they probably already know. Hey, we're going to send this many here, this many here. Um, but it's it's con- if, at least have the conversation on the front end. If nothing else, at least you've talked about it. Yeah, no, at that level, fire is usually pretty
0: better than law enforcement about preparing for that stuff ahead of time, knowing which which casualty centers, which trauma centers can do what, and
2: uh, usually they're. They're pretty good at that. No, I'm, I'm certain that they are, and that I've just shows my, my own ignorance of I don't even know uh, what those procedures are because we're, we don't talk about that. We talk about an active shooter response. We talk about where, all these things that we've talked about. But if we're looking at the overall process and how things are do- being done specifically from maybe an incident command level, that these are components that I'm not even 100 percent certain on that we need to. That I need to be more educated on, make myself aware of, and, and that can factor into to the decision making on 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 uh, how an event is on. Folding. So it's, it, you've given me a lot of really good things to think about just in, in this conversation, Travis.
0: Hey, Travis, uh, we're running out of time here a little bit. I want to talk to you briefly about your presentation at the conference, but since Brent brought it up, let's talk real quick about the things we think are wrong with Brent and what, <laughs> and what,
2: and what he needs to fix. I don't know that we have enough time in this podcast to go over that.
0: (laughs) I'm going to start with your face.
2: I'd like to fix uh, my face. I'll just try to fix my face a little bit. Fix your face. (laughs) Uh, He has a love of
0: peanut butter whiskey, which is just mysterious to me. Uh, not, Not to insult anybody who likes peanut butter whiskey, but, you know...
2: Uh, he likes peanut butter whiskey. Uh, it is what it is. Travis, you're down in Oceanside. There's a, a brand of whiskey that's made down in the San Diego area. It's called Screwball. It's a peanut butter whiskey. Yeah. I think it's I think it's a great whiskey. Myself, they sell it at but, the uh, uh,
0: junior college. <laughs>
2: <laughs> a, lot, a lot, of sales at the junior colleges. <laughs> uh, I'm not, I'm not as much of a, a whiskey connoisseur, uh, Reed snob as Marcus is, but uh, that's why he's making fun of you. Uh, right, right. That's kind of what I, I got. It well but I, I think it's a it's a it's a decent whiskey to, to check out if you haven't tried it yeah, yeah he he got all excited because he found a whiskey like
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not touching this one
0: <laughs> <laughs> um so let's talk about the conference real quick uh, you're going to be speaking at the conference this year uh we've got a pretty heavy lineup uh we've yeah, spent got some good stuff we spent our uh almost our entire budget on uh content and and getting the best speakers from around the country, and you had a lot to do with yeah. recruiting folks. But let's talk a little bit about your presentation. Uh, I'm hoping to catch it at least once because I know you're going to do it multiple times. But without yeah, giving I'm, everything away, just tell give me a couple of highlights of kind of what
1: you're what you're going over. Essentially, I'm just I I've kept track of every single lesson learned that I've that I, that I have from all of these incidents, and I'm going to go over every single one of them. And review them. You know stuff like the, that we've talked about. Um, you know things like hey, training your patrol officers and bounding Overwatch, why that's important. Um, training your team for clearing large warehouses, why that's important. Um, you know, go to more into the decision making side of the house. I've got about five or six decision making exercises that are based on incidents that have happened and decisions that either commanders or team leaders. Or in some cases, the patrol officers had to make, and it and, it, and both choices suck. And which one would you make? Um, so I'm really going to challenge their decision making. And I understand I, I get a uh, you know it's a smaller audience, which is good for that type of stuff. But that's that's essentially what I'm going to be going over. So I already presented it at the uh, NTOA conference, um, and it was uh, pretty well received. Uh, a lot of guys had some good stuff to say. And I give everybody all my stuff. They have all the information they want, all the decision-making exercises. I always provide that for whoever's there so that they can take them back to their team and, uh, and use them to improve their team members and get them ready. Because honestly, that's my sole focus is I just want all of us to be ready when the big problem lands on your front porch and starts ringing the doorbell and you got to answer the call. And uh, that's why I do all this. So,
0: man, it all comes back to that uh, Winston Churchill quote, doesn't it? Uh, yeah. I can't get away, I
2: can't get away from that thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I've got that thing uh, hanging up hanging up on my wall right now, and it says to every man there comes in his lifetime that special moment when he's figuratively tapped on the shoulder and offered a chance to do a very special thing, unique to him and fitted to his talents. What a tragedy tragedy if that moment finds him unprepared or unqualified for that which would be his finest hour. Yeah, and I don't know about you guys, but I don't want to be that person.
1: <laughs>
2: and, yeah. Uh,
0: yeah, that's a uh, driving motivation right there, brother. Well, Well, Travis, I want
2: to I want to tell you before you go, I want to tell you that you've helped me tremendously in that regard. You talked uh, you've talked to me about that before in the past and you've talked about um, you've used um, an analogy of this being a a Super Bowl and that you don't want to be unprepared for it when that moment comes and and um, you know I've taken that to heart and I've tried to learn as much as I can and read as much as I can and write as much as I can further my own um, education in this regard and, and having conversations with you and hearing podcasts about uh, about the things that you're discussing and reading your articles are uh incredibly useful to me man i take them and i create my own powerpoints we have my own training with uh with management here within our department and pushing it down through our team and so i know it's kind of a a labor of love for you i know like you said we all have uh, a lot of work that we're doing with uh, three or four or five different collateral assignments other community organizations we care about you know balancing that with uh um, with your family, uh, with your education. And I can tell you that I know it's a lot of extra work that you're taking on, man, but your work means a lot. Um, it helps um, inspire create a lot of thought in ways that you'll probably never really truly be able to measure. But I want you to know how important um, you are. I, I really consider you a, a thought leader in, uh, in our our industry and our corner of the world and you're helping push a lot of things forward, man. So I just want to encourage you and thank you for your time and your effort. I'm sure a lot of it goes unnoticed. Uh, it's very thankless, but, uh, but your work's important and it, it means a lot to me. So thank you. I appreciate it, dude. I, you know, like I said, if my, if my, if
1: what I do helps one person on one incident, it's all mm-hmm. worth it to me. That's, that's what it's all about. So
0: happy to you know. it. You know, Trav, I, again, I, I won't repeat everything Brent said because it's all true, and I steal as much stuff from you as I can, but uh, they didn't show the part about juggling and how nobody's appreciative until something really bad happens, and even sometimes then they're not, and juggling the four other collaterals and your home life, and they didn't show that in Adam-12 or Chips. No. <laughs> like none of that, yeah. that stuff, definitely wasn't in that cheesy swap wiki they made.
1: No
0: uh nothing <laughs> nothing about that nothing about that at all nope. I, I think the doors uh, the the days of just kicking doors and going and not really having to think those days are over this is a this is a thinking person's game and uh, it's, you know we've got some great people out there doing great work we just gotta do better at explaining why why what they do yeah
1: i'll leave you with this Whenever tactical operations are analyzed, it's always the decisions that are most conspicuous. And one thing I used to tell my guys when I was on a team is, hey, look, last mission, we didn't have to shoot anybody, probably didn't have to do anything very physical, but every single one of you had to make a decision. And it goes back to is it more important to go fast or in the right direction? I mean, you know. Yeah, always, great point, brother. So just keep that in mind.
0: Thanks a lot, Travis. I appreciate the time. I look forward to spending some time with you. Uh, hopefully, if I have my shit together during the conference, I'll actually no, be able to walk I, around uh, and say hi. Yeah,
1: I'm looking forward to seeing both of you guys. It's been a while.
0: Thank you for listening to the Cato Podcast. To become a member of Cato, check out our website at catonews.org. If you have a topic suggestion, please send them to podcast at catonews.org. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend and rate us on the platform of your choice.